Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Valkyrie Project podcast. I am genuinely excited to be hosting Dr. Stacy Sims on today's episode. I originally heard of her from a Valkyrie Project athlete who sent me a link to her TED Talk. The TED Talk is titled, Women Are Not Small Men, A Paradigm Shift in the Science of Nutrition. And after watching this video, it became more apparent to me than it already was before that medical research and science really need to put some more attention into understanding how female biology and anatomy and physiology, inclusive of all the other factors like environmental factors, how all of those things play into our ability to perform not only for health, but also for fitness, for athletic performance. Dr. Stacy Sims's video on the TED Talks page has about 300,000 views and is picking up steam all the time. So we wanted to sit down with her and pick her brains, get some of her expertise as to some of the best practices that have been well-researched for female military athletes, and generally learning more about how we should make nutritional changes and training changes in order to help women meet their utmost athletic potential. It is my honor to have someone as esteemed and knowledgeable as Dr. Stacy Sims on the show, and I'm glad that you're here to listen and learn, and hopefully you can take some of these lessons that you learned today and carry them forward in your own life and share them with others who need to know. I'm your host, Meg, and this is The Valkyrie Project. So it's so exciting to get to talk with you and do this finally. I've been, I, the first time I saw your uh, TED Talk was months and months ago, but I was out of the country and away from, you know, my ability to do podcasting or anything. So I was like, ah, I have to like get in touch with her when I'm back in the States. And here we are. Fantastic. Yeah. So um, you're in New Zealand. But you don't have a New Zealander accent, so I presume you're not you're not from there, right? I am actually an army brat from from growing up in the states. Nah, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and then when it came time to like decision time, I was like, yeah, I'm not very good at rules. <laughs> so, <laughs> two hundred years in military ended with me and my sister. Um, yeah, so. Like, I'm not really from anywhere, except I guess we landed in San Francisco um, when I was a teenager because my dad took command of the Oakland Army Base. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And then his last assignment was back at the Pentagon. So my parents moved east and I kind of stayed on the West Coast. And then I ended up in New Zealand in what, 90. End of 97, 98, because it was a time where there's a job that came up, and I was like, ah, I'm 26, single, no attachments, might as well. So I've been mm -hmm. back and forth for ever since then. Um, oh, wow. So we've been back in New Zealand maybe three years now, because I married a Kiwi and got to a point um, in the States where we were getting priced out of California. And then when this job came up for me, it just seemed like the right move. But that was a three-year contract, and that contract's up. So now we're like, okay, now what's where? Where do we go next? What do we do next? Yeah, yeah. That sounds like a really like you've had an interesting and dynamic background. Like, what other places have you been to before? In terms of like while you were while you were a kid, what posts did you guys go to? Um, 
were, gosh, so we were Fort Belvoir, and then we were down at Fort Eustis, and then Fort Polk, and Leavenworth, and then we ended up in, my dad was with um, NATO and Absent in Maastricht, and then back to Eustis, and then Oakland, um, and then they went Newport, Rhode Island, because my dad went to the war college there, and then he got the Pentagon. And then I bounced around from West Coast, East Coast, New Zealand, and West Coast. <laughs> so that's, You're the ultimate globetrotter. Yeah. That's cool. But, Hope- but this, this way around, not like, like I, haven't yeah. been to, I haven't been to South America. <laughs> I've been all over Europe. I've been like Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are other places in the world I still need to go. Well, I'm sure with the work that you're doing, which is just incredibly groundbreaking and kind of the forefront right now, I think, um, I'm sure you'll have opportunities to go lots of other places and excited to continue following your journey and, um, you know, learning from um, the material and, and the lectures and things that you do. But um I think the, inter- the the listeners would be interested to know, like, how you got into this particular field. Um, like, what was the inspiration and, you know, kind of what brought you to saying, okay, this is my calling? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a multifaceted, I guess, is the best way. Because um, when I was younger, like high school and stuff, I was a cross-country runner and played field hockey and had a really keen interest in food wanted to be a chef. And my parents were like, no, you can't, you have to go to a real university. And I started as a poli-sci French major at Purdue because I wanted to be a translator for the UN. And then I fell asleep in every poli-sci class. I was like, this is not right for me. (laughs) (laughs) This is an indicator that it's not a good choice. Yeah. Not a good choice. Yeah. My uh, college roommate was in exercise physiology and she's telling me about it. And I was like, that sounds really interesting. So I got into that um, and that was kind of the first, like, foray into how the body works through stress. And that's where the whole thing came. Well, you know, these questions that are keep coming up, they're not really applicable to me, not applicable to my teammates, because I was rowing at the time. And that started the whole seed of what's going on here. And the past 20 some years has been that whole drive to find out the real answers. Because when you think about all the things that we do now with training and nutrition, women are left out so much. And it's not just in the sporting realm either. I mean, you look at things like, um, you know, they have the big thing with crash, crash test dummies and how they're all male oriented. So there's a higher incidence of women versus men dying in car accidents think about autoimmune disease, right? There's a higher incidence of women with Raynaud's and other autoimmune diseases, but there's no real cure for it because they've been neglected in research. And right on down to like Alzheimer's. And when you get to the peri and postmenopause, there's a a twofold increase for women, but it's also a two to one for women versus men who develop Alzheimer's and dementia. But still there is no answer to why. And it's endemic within the sport and nutrition world too. So as I'm going through and trying to figure out all these answers of, cause I just didn't think it was fair. I guess that's the mm-hmm. bottom line. It's not fair if I'm going through life and trying my hardest to do these things and things are stacked up 
And as I started finding the answers and getting older, I wanted to share. And now that I have a seven-year-old daughter, I'm like, I don't want your path through sport and life and science to be as difficult as mine has been. So let's just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how I got to be here. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more that there definitely seems to be a gap. And um, I think, you know, a lot of women listening to this now can probably relate to that statement, particularly from their perspective as, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, um, with just the general consensus. And, you know, it's, it's based on the history of the U.S. military. We've generally been comprised of men for the majority for a really long time. And it's only in relatively recent history in the last I don't want to say 50s anymore because it's now it's almost I keep forgetting it's like almost 2020 and I'm like a decade off (laughs) but um yeah so it was it was majority men service members in the past and so it makes sense that you know a lot of um the standards for entry to certain schools and trainings for example are set based on you know male physiology Um, And a lot of, you know, cultural aspects are influenced by that, too. But there's such a big influx of women in all areas now. Um, And and really, you know, we we started the Valkyrie Project wanting to meet the need to train women to do those difficult jobs and go to those difficult schools when the Department of Defense opened all jobs and schools to women in 2016. And so, like, there's this desire, you know, there's women out there with a big heart that want to go do great things and, you know, for lack of a better word, do violence on behalf of protecting the the people of the United States. But, you know, if the heart's there and the training is not there, that person's set up for failure in a, in a big way, especially yeah, sure. when you consider there's a lot of men that have, like, backgrounds in infantry, for example, who've spent the last 10 years of their career practicing getting good as those things that become, you know, barriers to entry in certain yeah. in certain fields. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I mean, it's it plays on the whole history of marginalization of women across the board. Because it wasn't until what the 1960s when Catherine Switzer jumped into the Boston Marathon, right? And before that, people were like, no one, women are too delicate. They can't do anything. So we've been marginalized for so long. And then when you get into those patriarchal um, kind of Many societies, be it military, be it, um, you know, the police, um, firefighting, even doctors versus nurses, right? And it's all that patriarchal and the culture around it and the way people still identify and address women. It still gets under my skin because there's just little phrases and things that are used where I'm like, it's so demeaning. I, I can't believe you just said that. And when you point people out on it, then you're starting to change the culture. But when you're trying to change the culture of an entire mini society, it's so hard. So mm-hmm. like what you're doing and giving ways of changing from the inside out, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. So- Appreciate that. Yeah, I've been like, I don't know, compared to other experiences I've had in life, I've been genuinely surprised at... um you know, I think sexism is a, is a real thing for sure, and I've experienced it in the past, but I've also been genuinely surprised at how positive an experience I had in the military just based on there was this, you know, it's essentially a meritocracy. If you're good at your job, then you get respect. Fantastic. And I think that's a little bit different than, you know, some of the stuff you see on the civilian side where there's a lot more politics involved sometimes or, you know, 
office personality dynamics that have to be trudged through. Um, so I appreciate, you know, the fact that sort of the direct communication styles and, you know, the, the way that the chain of command is set up, it, it kind of eliminates some of those problems in some ways. But certainly it hasn't always been, you know, that good. And certainly not every woman in the military had the same good experience that I did. Uh, but, you know, all that to say there's still that big gap in training. So, uh, you know, if if you're open to it, I'd like to delve a little bit into, you know, the science of women and athleticism and, um, you know, look at some of the kind of facets that really our athletes, our female athletes listening need to consider. Um, as a primary, you know, question, you know, what are the what are the big differences that you've seen that are necessary between, you know, female and male athletic training for success? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, it we always start with like the menstrual cycle and the way that your um, natural hormones perturb every system of the body. So when we talk about like day one is the first day bleeding up to ovulation, we're quote more like men. So that means that we can hit intensities, we can go to the gym, lift heavy, recover, we can do a PR for a 5k. Um, so you can really hit it hard. And then around ovulation, some women feel really flat, so they can't really push as much. And if you're not tracking and you don't know, then you're like, what is wrong with me? But no one really has those conversations. And then as you start to go through and get closer to your period coming again, we say this is a high hormone phase. This is where we're least like men, where our core temperature is elevated. We have less water in the blood for sweating and, and other thermoregulatory properties. Um, all of our heat tolerance um, is increased because we're storing more heat and our thresholds for releasing it is, has been moved. So we sweat later, although we sweat more in that, in that phase. Um, we also have a greater predisposition for hyponatremia, so that's low blood sodium, because our bodies have reset and so our blood levels have been reset to a lower level, very close to that clinical hyponatremic state. Um, and then our power and our cognition is also a little bit offset because we can't access carbohydrate very well. So our bodies are already in a, in a little bit of a tired state per se. Um, and so when women aren't aware of how their cycles treat them or how these hormones affect them, we get into a lot of self-doubt. Like, why can't I hit that intensity today? What did I do? Did I not eat well? Did I not sleep well? Am I under a lot of stress? So the basic thing that anyone can do is track their cycle and start seeing how they feel versus different days and put that over training. And, and so they, you'll start to see a patterning. And we know that women aren't textbook 28 days. So, you know, you look at any of the pictures anywhere and they're like day one and then day is the first day bleeding. Day 13, 14 is ovulation and day 28 is the last day of the cycle. But we know now from some research that came out about a month ago that most women sit between 35 and 40 days. And what happens there is that low hormone phase gets extended. So we have a greater amount of time to hit that higher intensity. But if we misstep it and don't get it quite right, then <clears throat> again, we're compromising our ability to hit our performance potential. So does that mean that... For for example, like if, if someone is, you know, not on birth control, right, and like they find that they are running a longer cycle, is that in theory, you know, something that helps their training if, you know, there's a specified longer window of intensity? 
Yeah, if because I always walk that fine line between health and performance. So if I'm talking from a female performance angle, yeah, it's fantastic. Your follicular phase is longer. You have a, a bigger time to hit high intensities and recover. From a health factor, you're like, well, then why is it longer? Are you not ovulating? Is your luteal phase shortened because you don't have enough um, luteinizing hormone? So there's some undercurrents of why that extension is happening. But it could just be a normal, healthy thing. And that's where the research is trying to lead us to, to say, okay, well, now we know that women have longer cycles. Maybe this is the norm. The 28-day is not. Right. Uh, so if you're thinking about like what's the health parameter, if you're ovulating, that's great. doesn't really matter, right? So if you're ovulating, then that means you're healthy. And when you ovulate and release the egg, then that stimulates estrogen and progesterone to come up for that luteal phase. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at that longer cycle, from a performance perspective, I'm like, fantastic. You have three weeks of high intensity ovulation, and then maybe a shorter luteal phase. Instead of 14 days, it might be 10. So you can work steady state and then really dial in technique and cognition aspects. Um, So you can really break it up and be like, okay, well, I know I can do intensity two days on, one day off, or I can plan it where I have a block of really heavy resistance training to gain strength. And then it's more um, cardio or, or, uh, more steady state stuff. And then everyone feels a little bit off on those few days before their period starts, but this is a time to really work on technique and reaction time. Um, because if you're nailing technique can be running economy, you know, running drills, cycling efficiency, heavy lifting technique without the heavy weight, but you're working specifically on that technique. So when you get into low hormone phase, you're nailing it. And then it just translates into better performance gains. That's fascinating. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm mildly embarrassed that I have like put more consideration into this because I think it just becomes such an automatic thing that, you know, for many of us just becomes a thing you dismiss. Like it's the monthly annoyance that, you know, does not, um, that I don't have the time or bandwidth to play a lot of, you know, brain power into. I just get past it and move on with life. But it sounds like it has a much more significant impact on athletic performance than people realize. And I do wonder, too, you know, if if women – this is entirely an assumption because I I don't know the numbers. But I would would assume that most modern women, you know, in a developed world like the United States that uh, are not planning on having children right now are probably on birth control. And I wonder if there's any, you know – definitive research on the impact that birth control is having on athletic performance versus women that don't do it. You know, to, to take it to a personal note here, like, I can't remember the last, I was probably a teenager the last time I wasn't on it. And it's probably because the last time I tried to come off of it, it was like a roller coaster of emotions. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. I, I can't, can't function. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. yeah. So um, again, it, I'm talking from the performance angle. And it, if I encounter women who are on a, a oral contraceptive pill that doesn't have to be on it for a health reason, I try to get them off it. Okay. Um, there, it's many layers, but the very bottom layer is a period that you have on a oral contraceptive pill is a withdrawal bleed. It's not a real period. So we don't know if you're healthy or not. We don't know if you're responding to training, if you're staying out of a low energy state or not, if your endocrine system is working. Because when you have your period, one, we know you're healthy. 
And two, you can dial it in and use it as an ergogenic aid because it's that that whole myth and that tabooness around the menstrual cycle that makes so many of us think, oh, I just need to get past it, right? Oh, shit, I have three days of bleeding and feeling awful. But if we look at it as like, sweet, I know I'm healthy. I know when it's coming. There are specific interventions I can put into place from a nutrition standpoint to downgrade the inflammation that happens when my period starts so that I don't feel awful. There are also some nutritional interventions you can do in the days leading up to your period. So if, you know, military aspect of having a a performance test in the field or you have to do a a VO2 max test or a, a FTP test as an athlete, you're not compromised from where you are in your menstrual cycle phase. And then when we look specifically at the exogenous hormones of an oral contraceptive pill, they downgrade your adaptation potential. So we know that your VO2 max or the amount, you know, that top end is um, reduced. We also know that your ability to adapt to high intensity exercise and sprint performance is decreased between 5 and 11%, depending on some genetic factors and how well trained you are. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, we know that it causes a, a systemic increase in total body oxidation that cannot be overcome through nutritional intervention. So you're always in the state where your mitochondria are not going to adapt to aerobic capacity work as well as it should if you're not on an OC. And then depending on the progestin component of how active the progesterone is in that pill will either downgrade uh, muscle protein synthesis or stop it because it affects the basal level of the muscle protein synthesis. And the only way you can overcome it is by getting off the pill. Hmm. So we look at it, it's like, okay, well, I don't want to have kids, right? But I know that an OC has all these negative effects. What should I use? And I'm always telling people the two steps are consider an IUD. Because the technology technology has changed so much that now they're using ultrasound for placement. You go to someone who can place it well. You don't have the discomfort or feeling it, all the side effects that you hear about it. They've also changed the size of them so they're smaller and still effective. And you still have your natural hormones that perturbate. Um, It specifically alters the uterine lining as it grows to make it thinner. So that makes it inhospitable for a fertilized egg. But it also makes the cervix very inhospitable to sperm and works as a spermicide. So when we're looking at methods of pregnancy prevention, an IUD is on the World Health Organization's list as one of the top 200 essential medications in the world because it is so effective in stopping pregnancies. Wow. Um, Because you don't have to think about it. It's inserted, and for five years, you're not reliant on taking a pill. You're not reliant on or having different side effects. Um, yeah. And if you're on a copper IUD, you'll still ovulate. So when you finally get it out, there's no residual potential fertility issues. And with something like the Marina, the first six months to a year, ovulation is suppressed and then you start ovulating again. So it's really the whole idea of changing just small amounts of physiology to prevent pregnancy, but still allowing your body to do what it needs to do to stay healthy. Gotcha. And this is a significant consideration. It's a frustrating process because I've been through it before and I have some friends that have been through it too where 
you know, you, you schedule an appointment with the doctor that the Army assigned you or the Marines assign you or Navy or whoever. And that person's your person, whether you want to see them or not. And sometimes you're lucky enough to get a referral elsewhere, uh, but not always. And the depth of knowledge doesn't seem to be there in terms of, you know, what's the best option that's not going to, you know, create these other negative effects. And And I think there's also just a tendency in the medical field sometimes, you know, depending on where where you go and who you're talking to, to really quickly answer questions and quickly process a person through the appointment so that the next person can be seen when in reality, all of us probably need that hour with a doctor or GYN to explain this thing in yeah. painstaking details, especially when, you know, I can find articles online that say this particular thing you're taking might be impacting your athletic performance, but more importantly, might have repercussions for the long term. And it's, it's it was frustrating to, you know, go to a family care doctor who's like, no, the one you're on is fine. Yeah. Really? Like, you can't tell me any more than that? Yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's not just military. It's across the board. Like, I, um, I've been educating my GP here because I'll go in and she's like, okay, so tell me what's wrong. What do you know about this? Because you know more than me, which is really a breath of fresh air when you're thinking about physicians. But she's eager to learn because they don't teach this stuff in medical school, right? And so the more that we have um, continue education units or conferences and stuff that are explaining it and getting it out in the mainstream, the younger set of physicians across the board are becoming more aware. But then we also have to realize that most of the education around different pills and methodology of contraception is coming from the pharmaceutical agents. So you have a pharmaceutical rep will come in and educate a physician for five minutes. And then that'll be the the go-to because that's the newest thing that the physician has heard. And it's part of that cultural thing where, okay, we've got to be able to stop that. And physicians are inherently smart, so they should be able to read literature and be open to it. But it's the pressure thing. Like we have 15 minutes for an appointment. That's it. That's absurd. I know. And the way it is, is like you go in 15 minutes and then the next time you go in, you might have someone different and they have to look Mm -hmm. at your records. Right. And it's, it's like, what kind of healthcare is that? It's like a churn and burn. So there is, it's, it's a broken process. And the way that I can really empower women is try to get them the information and make it as easy to understand. And physicians are really, for the most part, interested enough if a patient comes in saying this is what I want this is the literature behind it what can you do for me so you're giving them the solution with the science behind it so they don't have to go find it they don't have to be responsible for it yeah you might be a high maintenance patient where it's like oh god here comes that person with the knowledge but in the long run it works for both of you Mm -hmm. so yeah arm yourself with information couldn't agree with that more yeah. Especially in a culture where people are expected to, you know, trust a doctor because they have the degrees. But uh, yeah. I've so many times, like, been like, nah, you're not cutting me open, surgeon guy. You seem kind of fishy. I just, the fact that you're so dismissive, no, I'm not. I, I want to see somebody else. Like, I know. I'm, I'm one of those people. I'm super high maintenance in the doctor's office. Yeah. Well, me too. And I, I laugh about it too because it's like they had this thing in New Zealand um, where 56 of their fifth year medical students, they usually get a grant 
to go overseas for placement because there's not enough hospitals. And 56 wow. of them, 56 of them took the, the three month grant money and went on vacation. Oh <laughs> so my gosh. So yeah. It's like, wait a second. Wow. Yeah. Human beings yeah. are like awesome and terrible at the same time. I swear. <laughs> it is a bit crazy. So yeah. Hmm. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, in a similar vein, in terms of, you know, paying attention to cycle in order to identify what will be natural peaks and valleys, and similar in the vein of hormonal changes and hormonal considerations. I read somewhere, I, I forget the guy's last name now, I wish I'd written it down. He's Menno something. He's really famous for uh, essentially training bodybuilders. And he had this article... That went viral. I know what you're talking about. I know what talking, you're talking about. Talking about women, basically estrogen is not catabolic. It's anabolic, but people don't understand it. And if women just eat some more fat and train a little differently, they can get just as shredded as the dudes. And I was like, oh, I need to like dig into this some more. So what's your perspective on that? You look like you know what article I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about because uh, the online course that we're doing, I put at the end critical thinking notes. And I put this article as one of them. Oh, cool. So I'll let you read this and then you make notes and then I put notes under it. So I'm reading it and I was like, if I didn't know anything, then I think this was spot on. Right. Hitting some high points. He has some science. But when you click on the links and you dig into the science, he's citing articles from a whole bunch of different populations, from rat studies, from sedentary women. And estrogen by itself is anabolic. So that's why you get that boost around ovulation. But when it comes up with progesterone, because it's not uh, ever in isolation in the human body. Progesterone is so catabolic, it counters what estrogen does. So there is no anabolic effect of estrogen. And so when you're reading it, and it's not about eating more fat. Yes, we do oxidize more fatty acids when we're exercising, which is why things like intermittent fasting and ketogenic diets and stuff don't work for us because we're already at our max fatty acid oxidation effect. Like our bodies reach that capacity just through natural physiology. That doesn't mean you eat more. It just means your body's already there. What we need to do is we need to eat more protein because we have a different, um, it's not really mechanism, but an extra step for muscle protein synthesis where women have to have enough leucine going to the brain first to trigger a translocation of the mTOR complex, which we talk about in the muscle. We need to trigger that translocation process in the brain first to feed forward to the muscle in order to create that muscle protein synthesis. So is it essentially like a, a demand, like a supply and demand kind of thing or? Yeah, okay. it's a, yeah, it's a straight feedback mechanism. For the, for the lay a, person, it, sorry, that doesn't like understand the super technical, yeah. technical aspect. So it's, uh, yeah, so your brain has to signal some an enzyme to work um, to trigger the muscle to start repairing, whereas men okay. just goes right to the muscle. Wow, okay. So so when you hear about like the chocolate milk campaign, 20 grams of protein post-exercise works for men, but it doesn't work for women. We need 30. And then like peri and postmenopausal women, we know they need 40 grams because as estrogen progesterone downgrade and drop off, then we lose the anabolic stimulus from food and exercise. 
So you need different stress and you need more protein to get that lean mass development. So when I was reading that dude Minna's article and I'm clicking all the links, I'm like, you can't be for real. Like a lay person reading this would just really buy into it. But when you start really digging into the science that he's supposedly quoting, it doesn't match up at all. There's misinterpretation of the science. It's not the right population. Like Again, there's some rat studies in there, and none of that is really applicable for women. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, that's disappointing because I was super excited when I read it. And it's... Now you're like, hey. It's tough too when you don't have the when you don't have the specialized training and degrees because you, you want to go to the scholarly articles and read through them and sometimes the volume of information I have to go back and look up because I'm not trained in that particular field is like I just I can't understand this gobbledygook. Someone please make it easy for me. And the other thing with a lot of the research earlier day research with um, female athletes is they weren't designed properly. They would either just combine women and men and not look specifically at sex differences, or they would just look at women in the low hormone phase and generalize across the board, or they would just use women on an oral contraceptive pill, which we know is not appropriate for the entire population, or they'd mix it up. Um, so recently, there have been some really good scientific designs coming out and really nailing the phase effect, like looking for ovulation, doing blood tests. So we know that when you're doing the heavy strength work in the low hormone phase, you're going to get more um, lean mass and strength development um, rather than if you do three times a week consistently. Right. We also know that the typical periodization program of three weeks on, one week off doesn't work for women because depending on your menstrual cycle, you may miss some really critical days where you can hit it hard and recover well. Um, or you might be doing high intensity in a time where your body's like, I can't do high intensity. So you're fighting your own physiology. So it's really taking a step back and having to re-look at all the basic information that we know. And I'd say that it's like four or five of me's total lifetime career path to redo all the research. So I'm like, okay, who wants to come in? <laughs> Let's do this. Like, um, no pressure, only, Stacey. Come on now. We're right. We need this. I'm working. I'm working. Um, but it's not just the basic stuff. But then it's the new stuff too, like concussions. Huge, huge across the board. Um, and we know that concussion symptomology and recovery is completely different from men to women. But all the recommendations for recovery and you know symptomology is based on men. And depending on what phase of the cycle you get your head injury will really dictate how fast you recover because there's a, a certain neurotrophic factor or a, a, a transmitter, so to speak, that enables the brain to heal that is in direct correlation with estrogen. So when estrogen's up, BDNF is down. So if you're hitting the high hormone phase around ovulation, you don't get the stimulus for brain tissue repair because that neurotrophic factor is down. So this elongates recovery process. And people are just like, oh, well, we know there might be a sex difference in concussion, but we're not sure why or how we actually recover. So that's a whole new body of research is coming out. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But we still need to back it up and, and see you know, what's going on here. Like, how do we prevent? How do we inform people that this is happening, not just in sport, but across the board? So yeah, yeah. 
it seems like it would have a huge role to play as well in preventive medicine and just general maintenance that really as as a society we've been trying to move towards in the last 30 years or so when, since people realized that fats aren't bad for you and you know right. red meat doesn't necessarily cause heart disease like we should look at this a little closer and yeah having to backtrack and start at that point but with through the lens of the female physiology and anatomy and, and chemistry is like a tall order Man. i know i I love teaching a nutrition class for second years right now. We just went through like the carbohydrate recommendations that most sports dietitians go on. Like if you're light activity, X grams per kilo per day, if you're heavy activity. And we actually look at the guidelines and look at the research that's coming up with why you need X amount of carbohydrate. Out of 157 articles, 16 are in women. And none of those 16 have anything to do with carbohydrate needs in women. It's more the low energy and, and bone and menstrual cycle dysfunction. There's obese women losing body fat on liquid milk. Um, and then there's one on untrained resistance women using fluid milk as a recovery. But none of them have anything to do with carbohydrate. And I was like, well, how is this appropriate? Well, how did this get through as a position stand when you're looking at basic needs of carbohydrate intake for keeping people healthy? And it's like when you fight it, you get pushed back against ACSM and all these other. And they're like, no, it's in the too hard basket. Just go with it. Mm-hmm. So it's fighting system, trying to find the re- right research. So, yeah, I keep going, come on, everyone, get into the female athlete research world so we can take over and benefit everyone. There's a lot of opportunities here. Um, maybe we'll have to do a mind meld at some point after the podcast and see, you know, we could do some shared information or something, some kind of research support, something, you know, maybe the information that we're gathering about our athletes over time could contribute in a helpful way. Um, yeah. Assuming that they'd want to participate. But um, I'm interested to go back to the topic of protein. Cause it's such having been in the fitness world for such a long time, I've seen a lot of diverging opinion on, nutrition anyway, but especially around protein, because, you know, it's the fundamental building factor for muscle recovery. And the number one thing basically that everyone looks at when you start uh, a program of macronutrients or whatever it is, right? Like the building block is a protein. Mm -hmm. I have always heard and read that the general average large, like male can't Uh, process more than 40 grams at a time therefore no one should ever be taking more than 40 but generally what's available on the market is 24 grams per scoop and i think there's a company out there right now i forget what it's called that um is actually doing a smaller scoop and saying okay well if you're a woman and you weigh this much you need this many scoops and you weigh that much you need this many scoops and so like trying you know trying to make it more helpful for women to anticipate you know how much of this am i taking that's actually working for me and how much money am I wasting by consuming too much protein after workout? Yep. Are there general guidelines for that? Like if I'm 145 pounds and like 22% body fat, is 24 grams right for me after a workout or? No, you need 30. 30 to 30. My mind is blown. Okay. All right. And a lot of, yeah. And I mean, it's good to see that more generalized rec- or less generalized recommendations are coming out. 
And when we say what are um, some of the actual true recommendations for women, the research really isn't there until I guess there's been a few studies that have come out in the past year, really specifically looking at that whole muscle protein synthesis. Um, and we know that with resistance trained women, in order to get that boost that men find with protein and growth hormone, that the minimum is at 30 grams. And then, like I was saying, we found with endurance women after a long training session to bring that catabolic state down and develop that lean mass um, stimulus, you do need between the 30 and 35. And the older you get, the more you need. And when you're looking at like total intake throughout the day, a 40 gram dosage from a meal standpoint is bare minimum. And then it's looking at how many, how can you keep that amino acid pool high? Because we know after a certain amount, then your body just needs to turn itself down a bit to assimilate those amino acids. So if we're looking at how would we scope a day, it's like you get up, you have maybe some something with protein before your workout just to boost amino acid circulation. Then afterwards, you have the rest of that 30 gram dose. And then you have maybe it's in breakfast, maybe it's a protein shake, whatever it is. Then at lunch, it's a 30 to 40 gram dose. And then afternoon snack, you're looking at between 20 and 30 grams. Dinner is another, um, you know, 30 to 40 grams. And so you're getting your intake throughout the day, but you're also giving your body that chance to assimilate those amino acids. Because there is a lot of um, talk around there like, oh, you should have some protein every couple of hours, which doesn't allow your body to assimilate, absorb and put those amino acids into play. So, yeah, it's another body of research that's really new in women, but almost everything we've heard has been based on primarily resistance trained men, not even endurance trained, just resistance trained. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And the protein guidelines that come out when you read them, it's another infuriation because the research in that is, again, like I said, based on men, but then they generalize in the position stand saying he slash she or older adults, but they don't specify where that research is coming from. And then it's either male or rat research until the past year when they've come out with a few really good tight studies. Wow. Every time I think I like sort of know a little bit, my mind just gets totally boggled. And <laughs> it also just makes me think back to like, you know, you were, you said you ran cross country in high school. So I'm sure you can relate to this. Like, Think about how many years we spent as like high school endurance athletes pounding carbohydrates and like I know I'd have a steak once a week. I ate so much ramen. It is obscene. <laughs> how how am I alive right now? Like how many bagels did you eat? Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's pervasive still, like in the pro cycling circuit, um, primarily the men, their management is like, you can't have red meat in a stage race. It's like, why not? That's when they need it. Oh, they need pasta, pasta, pasta. It's like, oh, no, they don't. So it's still that cultural thing that's come up. Yeah. So, and then the other thing that always comes up too, especially for female endurance athletes is if you don't have your period and everyone's like, yeah, I don't have my period. Like, no, that's not a good thing because then that means you're in a low energy state. And that's something that's kind of starting to emerge where people are understanding like a low energy availability isn't the quote female athlete triad because you're not that perturbed. But if you lose your cycle or you're starting to put on body fat around the belly in particular and you're tired and not adapting, you're not eating enough. 
And when you're trying to tell an endurance athlete who's trying to hit a power to weight ratio that you need to eat more, they're like, what? No. But in fact, in order to lose weight, to hit that power to weight ratio, you need to eat more. And that's something that I never heard as a teenager running cross country. It was always like, oh, yeah, carbo load, but then you got to watch your weight. No. Oh, really? Yeah. We never heard that, but I think we were all just skinny noodle people anyways. But we probably could have benefited from some more weight training now that I think about it. Yeah, I think that was part of it because there was a group of us that were really in the gym because it was, I don't know, on the backside of Gabby Reese coming out and all of her muscles on. And we're like, we want to be like Gabby. Um, So we had the whole, you have to carbo load and don't spend too much time in the gym because you have to be light to be fast. Oh, man. Did you ever come home and have your parents be like, you're starting to look like a boy? No, never had that. I didn't. But my mom let that fly out of her mouth one time, and I know she didn't mean anything by it, but I crack up because looking back now, like I'm I'm way more boy-like now than I ever was then. But I also enjoy, I enjoy my muscles, so it's fine. I know. Uh, Lift heavy shit. It's good. Yeah, it's, and it's good for you. It's a good thing we're so damn resilient that we can bounce back from things like bad research and, know. you know, five years of carbo loading straight. I know. Um, so speaking of endurance sports, uh, something else I was thinking about in the previous discussion um, was the the assumptions or the presumptions that women and men have you know, significant difference in capability for endurance versus power, that generally men are more capable in the power department and women are more capable in the endurance department. Is there any science to back that or is it another kind um, of vaguely assembled assumption? No, it, there actually is science to back that up and it has to do with sex differences in muscle enzyme activity, also sex differences in... Um, like your biomechanics, your carrying angle, your hip to knee or your Q angle, and the explosive power that men can can generate um, from some of the muscular activity. And then from the endurance standpoint, like women are really starting to supersede and, and surpass a lot of, of the men, especially in the ultra stuff, because we already have that max fatty acid oxidation capacity and our hormones are working for us. Um, so yeah, there is truth in the matter, but then the other thing is to remember that women in sport is still relatively young and the research isn't still isn't catching up. So it could be a training factor where all of a sudden we're like, Oh, okay, maybe we can get some more explosive power. If we change the technique of the way we're lifting, it's Mm -hmm. still, it's a mystery. Well, not really a mystery, but it is something that is starting to be considered, especially in younger athletes. Um, because of that whole switch that happens at the onset of puberty where women's hip angle changes, their carrying angle changes, they put on more body fat, and they're not retaught how to run, how to throw, how to lift, any of that. So it's that technique thing, that fundamental movement and technique, and that's starting to come under scrutiny as well. I would think that that, especially for the female military athletes, would play a pretty significant role as something to look out for and to look forward to in the research, just because, you know, considering the Q angle and all the other aspects of, you know, how a woman is assembled differently from a man, in general, the jobs and schools that we're trying to help women get into or do better at, in generally, speaking of those things, like the, the standards are the same, 
right? So everyone has to perform the same amount of push-ups in two minutes, or everyone has to perform a 12-mile foot march with a 40-pound bag plus four quarts of water in under three hours, let's say. That's a pretty common one that we see. Um, but when you're walking that distance with a cue angle versus not, I wonder to what extent it's even been studied, like what kind of exercises in preparation for this movement can help prevent injury and make a woman's movement more efficient. Um, it took me years to figure out how to pack my actual hiking backpack, my rucksack, appropriately so that when I was moving, I was moving efficiently because the, the early advice I got was from some really experienced male infantrymen that said, oh, set up your pack like this. You want to carry all the weight with the strap around your waist. You want to carry all the weight with your waist. And after experimenting with it a couple times, I was like, I actually really hate that. It makes my hips hurt. I'd rather carry yeah. all the weight on my shoulders, high and yeah. centered behind my head like like a child or, you know, a basket. Like, that feels way better. But it took me messing with it and having a couple really bad experiences trying to move as fast as I could for 12 miles with a really frankly like shittily assembled backpack just yeah. because there's no understanding of like how should I wear it if my body's shaped differently and center of gravity differences too so we know that um, men and women have different center of gravity so for women we tend to be a little bit higher in our center of gravity and men tend to be a little bit lower in the center of gravity so, really that makes yeah. sense okay. so you know putting your pack up higher that works with your center of gravity um, and then when we're thinking about Q angle and, and the press up movement, because we have wider, a wider um, carrying angle. So that whole aspect of a push up is harder. Um, and it has to, again, do with technique. So if you're looking at what is the standard, are they teaching a standardized technique for push up or is it just a certain amount of push ups you have to do? And if you're looking at a certain amount of push-ups, then it is, how do I maximize working the lats instead of necessarily the pec? How do I work the rhomboids instead of just the pec? So it's locking the shoulder down and making sure that you have, you know, a lot of men are like, oh, my elbows are going to be tight. But for women, having tight elbows is not appropriate because that is not where our carrying angle and our pushing angle is. We're a little bit wider, so we need that wider base. And when we're thinking about hiking with a wider cue angle, it's really developing the glutes, um, especially like the glute med and all those outside muscles, because you need to have that strong in order to have foot placement and pull the knees out. Because a lot of women are weak there just by the nature of our cue angle. So we put more stress in the hip and the knee instead of putting it in the muscle. And so and like the common thing is let's go do squats, but it's not just a typical squat. It's like really making sure that you're hip hinging and getting over and driving the knee out so that you can develop the, the glute med and get, get it where you need it to be instead of just a typical squat, male squat. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some considerations there that have been interesting to watch play out for me over the years, just seeing women with more shoulder injuries in general and men tending specifically speaking of the military population, just from people I know, like women um, tend to complain a lot more about shoulder injuries and men tend to complain more about lower back issues. And it often comes out in physical therapy that the women were underdeveloped with strength before they attempted certain feats of strength with the upper body and men were 
generally, for whatever reason, excessively hip-dominant, creating issues in their lower backs. And, like, it's a distinction that's kind of shown itself over time. And then, you know, so the follow-on question for that is, what are we doing to fix those things? Because those are redundant problems that physical therapists in the military are constantly dealing with. Yeah, so um, Kelly Starrett and his wife, Juliet, when they started Mobility Wad, which is now the Ready State, um, they're now really addressing that fundamental functional technique of movement between men and women and showing these differences and, and really discussing how you develop the pure strength as a woman versus a man. So uh, it's relatively new, but that's a focus. And they're showing the mobi- mobility aspect and the technique aspect. So that's like one of the only places I would sh- throw people, especially from a physio aspect, because it's showing all the things that a physio should know about the anatomy and how to teach technique as well as how to address injuries when they come up. I didn't realize that Mobility Wad had changed brands. I guess I haven't really looked at their stuff in a long time. September, they changed brands um, because there's so many people that took the word wad. So you have like ROM wad, you have the daily wad and you have the CrossFit wad of the day, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of confusion And they're also moving a little bit more than just mobility. So the ready state is how do you prepare your body to be ready for anything? So when you wake up, what do you do to be able to be ready for the day? You have uh, a sprint event or a test, um, a physical test. How are you preparing the body? So not only are they looking through the mechanics and what they usually do with the mobility wall, they're also pulling in different experts to discuss things that will allow you to be prepared for whatever you're doing. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, it's cool. Seems like there's a lot of emerging knowledge on that as well, and some of it's great, and some of it seems a little misinformed with with regard to how people should prepare for exercise. And I've seen it before where people just show up for their morning formation for a morning, you know, dictated exercise session is like, well, I pounded my coffee and I had my cigarette. Here we go. Like, I know. It's so it's bad. And it gets worse as you get older, right? And so you'll see people are like trying to hobble over to formation or hobble into the gym. And you're like, so you're going to just start in right away? You're like, aren't you going to loosen up in any way? Oh, no, I don't get loose while I move. It's like, that is not the right answer. (laughs) Uh, Good luck with that future injury. Ouch. Yeah, exactly. Man. So... I'm interested also to hear about this course that you're offering online. Mm-hmm. What can we, if we have listeners interested in checking that out, what can they expect to learn? What, what's the content, you know, and, and to what extent is there like a follow-up with you or, or anywhere else? So um, the drstacysims.com website has like the link to it, but basically it's seven modules or seven weeks. And each week has uh, between five and seven what we call chapters that are between 15 and 30 minutes each. So like week one or module one is about the myths and generalizations to get you to understand where women are in the research and how we got to this point. Then the second one is what I call the most sciencey one. So it goes through 
hormones throughout life from puberty through premenopause, if you're on an OC, if you're on an IUD, perimenopause, postmenopause, how all those hormones affect us with regards to um, strength improvement, body composition, how we feel, cognition, so all the real sciencey kinds of things behind it. Then when we get to the third week, it is um, how to train like a woman. So it's like taking the concept of training, phase training uh, across your life. So when you are on an OC or an IUD or naturally cycling, and then when you get to perimenopause or postmenopause, what kinds of things you need to change in order to keep improving to meet your potential. Then we have one that's on diet trends. So really going into like what is keto, where did it come from, why is it not appropriate for women? Same with intermittent fasting. Um, then a little bit more into the plant-based stuff and how you can incorporate it if you want to. Um, then we get into, uh, so I've interviewed four top coaches um, across the board. So there's a cycling coach, there's a triathlon coach. There is a woman who is a friend of mine that we used to race bikes professionally. She's still racing professionally, but she's also a coach and does age group Ironman and places really well. And then Olympic weightlifting, National Olympic weightlifting coach, and talking about their experiences and how they've changed their conversation with their women, um, what to ask your coach. So just kind of giving the coach's side of things. Um, and then we get into a little bit of biohacking, like what kind of interventions you put into place in high hormone phase, um, how you can acclimatize to the heat, how you intervene with Raynaud's so you can prevent Raynaud's um, and after drop. Uh, what is PMS? How do you mitigate it? And then when you're going through perimenopause, how do you use adaptogens and things to address things like uh, cognitive decline and brain fog and lack of, of stimulus to, to exercise? And the same with menopause. And then because there's so much information, the last week is putting it all together. So pulling out specific key concepts to kind of wrap it up so you're not left going, well, what do I do? What do I do? Um, and then also in that seven weeks, we have a private Facebook page where you can post questions for every week and I'll go in and answer them. There's lots of group discussion. Uh, and then we have a couple of Facebook live sessions as well where I'll be there answering questions. And if you can't make that, then you post questions and I'll answer them later. Very so cool. Trying, yeah, I'm trying to get as much of the basic information out there. I mean, we've gotten onto some tangents where I've gotten questions that are really specific from a health parameter, like a medical parameter, like what PCOS and uterine ablation and stuff. And I don't answer that because I'm not a medical doctor. So I'm like, I'm covering from a physiological and a scientific angle. And these are the things that we know. And these are the things you can implement. But from that health factor, you need to talk to your physician or these are the resources that you can take to your physician. Um, because like I said, I'm that fine line between performance and health, but I'm not a medical doctor, right? which is hard for some people to tease out what is that fine line. Like I have PCOS and I want to know how to train. Yeah. Well, first we have to address what are your levels of hormones? How does it affect you? What kind mm -hmm. of medical are you doing? And that's outside of the scope of what we're doing. Gotcha. But it sounds like anyone that's generally looking for more information about some of the under expressed or under communicated research that's valid and backed and and well vetted in, in the community can be found on this online training. Yeah, basically it's everything that I've been trying to push out and I'm trying to get other people educated so they can push it out. 
with the hopes of instigating young researchers who want to follow a particular path or educating dietitians or coaches so they can look for greater uh, resources or look at the research and say, no, this isn't appropriate for my athletes. So it's just really trying to spread the word as fast as I can um, without having to physically go somewhere and do small group talks, which isn't very effective for getting the word out rapidly. Right. I totally understand. So is from what I from what I saw in looking at your book Roar, it's it's a similar set of topics, correct? So we could get similar information from the book, or is there like a big key difference we should know about before we send the readers to go or the listeners to go check it out? So the book was written ooh, three or four years ago, and science evolves. The basic concepts within the book are still sound and valid, but there are things like the protein dosing. The new research has come out. How do you train? Newer research has come out. So it's the course is taking in the newest science that's been vetted and trying to push the message forward in that way. So ROAR is a really fantastic starting point and it can be a really good resource. But knowing that if you take the course, you're going to get a bit more into some of the nuances that we couldn't quite get into with the book. Um, just because, like I said, science evolves and the more we know, the more we want to put into play. Absolutely. Well, I certainly appreciate having you on the show. Uh, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. But, um, I'm really excited to check out that online training and would highly encourage all the listeners to go look at what look as well. You said it was drstacysims.com? Yeah. Everybody go take a look for sure. Yeah. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. And as you know, you're talking about everything changes and I'm not really sure where to go for resources. Ping me for questions. Like I'm happy to answer and get people on the right path. And if I don't know the answer, then I'll try to find someone who does. I'm going to absolutely take you up on that. And I hope you know what, what you've just invited with that question, because I have so many questions. No, that's So many fine. questions. That's fine. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. And because, I'll say for... As I said, because without people doing podcasts like you we still would be in a dark hole. Like you are facilitating the movement. You're facilitating the good information. So the more you know, the more you can pass along as well. So yeah, offer stands, ask questions. Sounds great. And I would at the same, on the same note, thank you for all the work that you do. It's so important to a specific community out there, people like myself that are looking to make the most of what they've got. And we're just really looking forward to seeing what comes out next from Dr. Stacey Sims. But Thank you again so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your first day of summer. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll be sure to uh, follow up with you soon. Great. Thanks. And as always, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ValkyrieProjectUS.com to send ideas, shout outs, personal testimonies, or stories you'd like to share. We are also on Facebook and Instagram as ValkyrieProjectUS. So be sure to like and follow those pages to stay up to date. Do today what others won't. Do tomorrow what others can't. Thanks for listening.